If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Today's chat's been brought to you by International Horse College. We have a mission to improve the welfare of horses throughout the world through the safe education of riders, handlers and trainers and that's what these chats are all about. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Alright, today I want to introduce the legendary Heath Ryan. Heath's a dressage and an eventing specialist and I'm not quite sure which one or if it's both. He's ridden at Olympic and World Championship level and he's winning at National Championship level so we will talk to him about that. How are you today, Heath? Very well, Glenn. Good, good. No, Heath, we normally start off with a favourite quote, so I'm sure you've got one for us. Right. Well, for me, my mantra has been just never give up. And if that qualifies as a quote, that sort of aligns my my life has revolved around. So, yeah, that's what I do. I, I am sure I punch above my weight and I, I'm not always successful, certainly not immediately, but, but you know, just never give up. All right, we're going to ask you a bit more about that later on in the interview, Heath. Now, I know that you've got a horsey family. I think you rode, I think at one stage you were riding eventing. Rosie, your wife, was riding dressage. Your brother was going to ride eventing. His horse went lame and your parents were both driving. Where was that, at world championship level? Yeah, that was probably, in a way, that would be, from a family point of view, our most memorable moment, and that was in 1990 at Stockholm. And Rosie, my wife, was on the Australian dressage team, and that was the first dressage team to ever leave Australian shores. And I was on the three-day event team. Matt was supposed to be on the three-day event team, but his horse went lame. So he switched, and he was the groom for mum and dad who were in the four-in-hand carriage driving competition. So it was a real family effort. I don't know if we ever recovered financially from that effort, but we dine out on it lots. <laughs> it was a, a wonderful thing to have done. Yeah, yeah. All right. So obviously you're from a horse family. What are your first memories of horses? Well, my dad was a large animal vet and he was very keen about the idea of we boys being involved in horses. He was a lecturer at Sydney Uni for a long time and they had ex-police horses there. And in those early days, I'm just trying to think, but that would be in the 60s, all the vet students, it was compulsory for them to ride a horse a little bit. They were ex-police horses. And, of course, we boys got to be put up on these horses occasionally, and that was our first look at it. Yeah, we were probably, I don't know, five. And I do remember going for a ride and, and stopping at a dam and letting the horses have a drink and them putting their heads right down, and, and I thought I was going to fall off, and it was a terrifying experience. <laughs> it's funny how when you're that young, it's the most terrifying experiences that seem to have made, made enough of an impression to be remembered. Yeah, but that was my early days. All right. Now, from there, did you, because I know you went to the UK, did you leave school and go to the UK or did you work in between? How did that work out that you went from school to become a professional? Was it a direct, I'm going to work professionally with horses or was it a bit of a roundabout way to get there? I think I sort of finished school in the late 70s and um, uh, I was at a bit of a loss. I, I, I really, really did not want to go to university I was sports mad, and one of the, uh, you know, my major interests was riding. I was a terrible rider. I'd just done pony club. I, I loved it. And I think mum and dad decided it would be a good way to get me out of their hair. And I, I went off to England in Devon with uh, Colonel Froud. He was running a course there. He had been the English, the national instructor for England in those days. They had such a position. And he was running a private British Horse Society assistant instructor course. Well, instructor's course. I went on and signed up to try and become an assistant instructor. It was called a BHSAI in those days. And I loved it. I was fascinated by the whole thing. And that was the beginning. I, I don't think 
I had meant to go off and become a professional instructor or rider. I was certainly a competitor since, you know, I think I was born a competitor, but the horses sort of just gradually evolved into my life. But that certainly crystallized my interest was when I went to England and did six-month course there with uh, Colonel Trout, Bill Trout. He actually wrote a few books and things that you can still find in the bookshops if you look around. Mm-hmm. All right. And if someone, you know, because you've trained, oh, we're going to get to that a little bit later on. Actually, no, we won't. I had a quick look. Now, we've done at this stage over 100, and you must probably about be about 113, say 112, 113. And I had a look through... Wow and did a quick search of people who have said that you've influenced them in their career, and 13 at this stage. You know, I just think, wow, that's pretty good. Actually, no, we're up to 99. So, you know, that's 13%. And, and we're not, you know, we're, we're already talking industry specialists, and you've had some influence. So you've really had a lot of influence over a lot of specialists who've gone on to become specialists. But what I want to, oh, yeah. It's really good statistics. What I want to ask you, though, is the core skills. So when someone, when you first, first see someone and they say, look, I want to work with horses, I want to have a career with horses, what sort of core skills are you looking for? Yeah, lots of people ask me that. And, like, we have eight students with us who work full-time. And, you know, I mean, we would like to think at least three of them make the Olympics in 2020 for Tokyo, which is a pretty serious statistic. You know, if you think there's probably only 16 riders get to ride for Australia Mm. at the Olympics, Olympics. um, it's definitely not talent. I never select some talent. In actual fact, I don't select anybody. All the people that ride with us today or in the past have been people that have sought us out. So they, they're people that felt that we had something to offer them and they were here because they wanted to be. I think just at the moment, uh, Hazel Shannon is having a wonderful success here and she won Adelaide Four Star in 2016 and she, she'd only been riding eventing for eight years. Now she'd grown up in the golf country in North Queensland and, and her family come from a camp drafting background but she, anyway, it, it's a bit of a long story, but she came to us through an, her aunt and stayed on and has done very well. Now we have a collection of, of about four of these kids have all ridden Grand Prix and train their own horses. And they're all under 30 and, you know, I call them kids. They're not kids anymore. <laughs> but the thing about it is that they are mentally and physically very fit. Um, they find us and then we would work, I don't know, uh, 12 hours is a normal day for us. And, and at times we can do 16 or 18 hours, especially when we're competing and we travel all night to the competitions. So it always sounds romantic, but it's not. It's really, really hard work. So it's just the kids that survive us, that stay and not only survive, but actually realise that it's a, a wonderful sort of opportunity and embrace it. Now, I think most Olympians, and, and we are, not everyone's interested in sort of elite riding, and that's fine, but, but that's what we specialise up in. But most Olympians are produced by their mums and dads. And so, you know, as a six-year-old, they're bought a pony and the mum and dad usually are either really fancy riders themselves, so they know the pathway, it's a knowledge game, Mm -hmm. or they live alongside an instructor who's pretty jolly handy and they take their child to that instructor once a week. And then as their child grows, gets a bit older, they upgrade the pony and then weekends... Most of your Olympians have come from parents that have then take the kids out on pretty regularly, most weekends or majority of weekends in the year, to competitions. Now, of course, to start with, it's just fun. That's critical. But there is a line that's crossed there. Now, by the time you're 18, most Olympians, you can see them pretty clear. And they might be an Olympian at 18, but you can see that's, that's a budding Olympian. Well, the kids and the staff that I have uh, kids that have finished school, 18 or 19, 17, some of them, and they decide 
have this dream, but you know, they maybe haven't had the perfect start. So they think, I want to ride for Australia, and they have this passion. But usually, the only thing open for somebody like that is they go to a top rider. But if you're not already a top rider by the time you're 17 or 18, then you slot into a slightly different section, you become a groom. Now, that's actually an over... It's not necessarily quite like that, but you become an important part of an Olympic program. So you look after the horses and you exercise them and, and you become an invaluable part of promoting that rider's career at the Olympics. So you become part of an Olympic program, but you don't become the star yourself. You've actually missed the boat. Most parents have to do it themselves. Well, with us, we actually have those kids that have missed the boat and who are really determined and they jolly well end up going to the Olympics. But it's really complicated training riders that are a little older because part of the inheritance of being a human being is by the time you're 17 or 18, you know, you've got hormones running through your body, you're out of control, you're, you've got this inclination to want to be a baby eagle and fly on your own and you're, you're likely to be telling people like your mum and dad or other people in sort of positions of authority that they can go take a running jump. And so that makes it really complex to train somebody because this has to be all in boots and all. And so when you look at that statistic, that's what we have managed to overcome. And there are very few places in the world where the, the kids that fall into that category, no matter how badly they want to be an Olympian, they are so difficult to train and it's such a complex project that they're not produced. So, and you can backtrack that. You can have a look at most Olympians, where did they come from? And that, that's not what happens with us. So that's what's happened. Now, I don't understand how come we did that. That's something I don't understand, but it is what clearly recorded in history now. And it's a very interesting phenomenon. So what's happened is in the early days when we were at Lochinvar, we had the instructors course, which was tied in with the national coaching accreditation scheme and giving these kids a qualification for their six-month involvement with us. So the kids would finish school and their parents would pay for them to do the instructor's course. And, you know, with the gap year being something that was socially acceptable, the parents would go, oh, well, at least, you know, if they haven't gone to uni, they can still get a qualification. And that's a con, but it worked brilliantly. So it introduced us to lots and lots of kids with talent. Now, I don't say that with like talent as in natural riders, but people that were wanting to stay in the horse industry and, you know, had lots of very interesting thoughts about what they were doing. And so that's where those riders would be introduced to us. And so they'd do six months. Well, of course, the guys that found themselves very compatible with it. And our instructor's course was really involving competition. We'd be on the, on the competition road every weekend. And, of course, this was a huge eye-opener to a lot of those kids. And they embraced it. And then when the course was finished, the journey had been started and, and off they went. And some of them would then stay on with us, but others not, but experienced careers within the industry that were started there. Today, we run it a little differently in that we don't run the instructor's course. And, and it evolves as you learn more and more, but it's quite a phenomena. And, you know, we're very proud of it. And, and it nearly kills Rosie and I. And But, yeah, that's kind of how we eased into being where we are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Certainly a good record. I think actually, you know, up to 99, and I was just having a think, I think number 100 too. So that's 14% of the first 100 <laughs> that you've, you've influenced. So, um, yeah, and these are people who are already specialists. You know, they're already riding, you know, yeah. some Olympians, some riding and competing yeah. at an international level. So good record. Now, what about people who... Oh, no, sorry, sorry, I didn't. But I was just going to say, some mm. of those guys are actually now, you know, I mean, as old age sort of dawns on the horizon, um, some of those guys now are sort of in administration areas and, you know, sort of part of the high-performance team at the Olympic levels and things, so, mm -hmm. and sort of chairs of boards, and it's a wonderful thing. It's really 
lovely and it's fascinating to watch these kids go on and be successful. And I think being in the horse industry, it actually is a really healthy way to conduct your life. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, a bit of hard work never hurt anyone, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, but it's also you can't perform unless you completely dedicate it to the well-being of your horse. Mm, so it, mm. it's not just about you. Right from the start, your number one priority is to be uh, your horse's welfare. Uh, yep. You know, unlike most elite athletes, which it's all about them, you know, there is, there is that in there. It's got to be a focus, but the focus must never, ever override the well-being of the horse. Otherwise, you're just uh, an also-ran. And, mm. and that, that, that's, that's a good thing. Mm. All right. Now, people who've helped you, you've talked about Colonel Froud. Who else do you think has helped you along the way? Well, I um, sort of kaleidoscope of different ideas and influences, and I, I've been very lucky. You know, I mean, I got a lot more focused once I went to Colonel Froud, and he was great for me because he was this sort of English army colonel, and, I, you know, he just about would line us up standing We'd all be at attention, and he'd go and check whether we'd um, groomed our horses properly. And he'd he'd go on to the the croup of the horse and use his fingernail, scratch the hair backwards. If any dust came up, you were considered to have cleaned your horse properly. And there was not, none of this hosing down that we do today. It was all with a, a body brush and a curry comb, you know. And and so that's exactly what would drive me insane, um, realistically. But the attention to detail and the systematic approach, and then amazingly enough, still in, in loving what we did there. You know, I mean, normally that would just turn me straight off. And I loved it, um, the experience. So that was that was really important, being systematic. Um, the other thing that I discovered with Colonel Froud was I had one horse. We had one lesson a day. Her name was Mayflower. It's one of the only horses, well, it's one of the few horses I remember their, their name. And she was this wonderful mare and she looked after me. God, I was a terrible rider. And I realised that I was really enjoying it halfway through the course. And I, I thought, oh, you know, I'm actually, this, you know, the worst things could happen to me than trying to be really good at this and, you know, spending my life in this industry. And so I asked Colonel Fred, I said, look, I'm loving the course. I'd like to get a second horse because I'd like to learn more. and I'd like to intensify up this experience. It's going to be a very short period of my life. And I'd like to get as much as I can. He said, no, no, we don't have another horse. I said, oh, okay. Well, what about if I went and competed Mayflower of a weekend because we wouldn't work of a weekend? He said, no, 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 I can't risk the horse getting hurt because that's my income and I can't charge you if you can't ride. And so basically the answer was no. And so... I thought, gee, you know, I need to take more of an advantage of this. So what would happen is, like, he'd, he'd say, you know, down this long side, and there'd be five of us in the group. There was, there was no private lessons and stuff, and, and he'd say, right, shoulder in. So we'd all come shoulder in. He'd be standing at the end of the long side. And he was quite an intimidating character. He was always really good. But, you know, army, army, army. He's like British army. Like, he was straight serious. <laughs> and he'd be standing at attention with his hands held behind his back and watching us and making comments. Well, the moment I'd gone past him, I'd spin around in the saddle because he'd be watching the next riders as they came down that long side and I'd be behind his back. I'd be pulling faces at the girls and monkeying around. And then I'd come back around and I'd try really hard in the shoulder in whilst he was watching me because I was genuinely interested. And so I thought, gee, you know, maybe I don't want to mess around like that. I need to be able to do shouldering down the other long side when he's not watching. I can practice here. And maybe I could ride the short sides. Well, for the next three months, I started to do that. And of course, my progress was more than quadruple. But I never once managed to do a whole hour, which is what those sessions were. They were an hour from start to finish Mm -hmm. on the dot. Mm -hmm. Um, I never once managed to not glance out and watch the milkman delivering milk uh, mid-morning, which is when we'd be having, or or get distracted a little bit, and I'd realised I'd just wasted five seconds, and I so that became my complete sort of obsession was to try and do a whole hour without wasting a second. And to be honest, no matter how hard I tried, I never managed to do a whole hour without, you know, at some stage my concentration 
drifting away. But the increase in the riding standard was phenomenal. And I realised that at the end. And I I sort of realised that sometimes you have all the opportunity right in front of you, but it's what you make of it. You don't need magic to happen. So that was a massive training experience to discover that. Then I went off to Germany and I, I was always an inventor or thought I was. I, I, I've got to tell you, Glenis, you've never seen such a bad rider in your life. But I was aware that the Germans were the dressage kings. And I thought, if I get away in this eventing world with, through dressage, that they won't catch me. And I was with a guy called uh, Egon von Neindorf at Wright Institute von Neindorf. It was in Karlsruhe in Germany. I was there for three years, and he was a classical master that he did airs above the ground, which was stupid. The last thing I needed to know was airs above the ground and things like that, but I I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I was just just a romantic wandering the world a little bit. Like, I wasn't very worldly. And he was awful in that he was past his prime. He was a professional, so that meant on two occasions he'd won – been first and second in the final Olympic trials, but he never went to an Olympics because he was a professional. He was old and he had a glass eye that was never focused and he had Andalusian horses, really, rather than just straight warm bloods. And they, they were Grand Prix or Lipizzaners, Andalusians and Lipizzaners. And they, they were Grand Prix, but it was um, they trained in old high school ideas. It was pretty savage. And he was, you know, he was sad, so he was he was alcoholic, really. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with being an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that. Um, but, you know, he was past his prime. Now, it was really, really hard work, and he was really tough. And so even the German kids that would sign up, and, and in those days, I can tell you, as soon as someone quit a job, there were more Germans there trying to take their place. The riding is such a big industry there. But anyway, because it was so savage, I ran out of money, but I was able to get a job there. And it was really tough, but I, I gradually worked out. I had 12 Lipitana stallions, and they were really dangerous because if you use the whip on stallions too much, um, you know, gap and massage, they will turn on you. There, there, there is this terrible thing that will happen to their characters. They yep. will charge yep. you. It's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that's the stable that I had. And I, I, I could stay alive. I had natural instincts as far as staying alive, so I could do it. And I would report one of these stallions in sick of a morning. And, of course, I didn't speak any German. I had no talent for language. <laughs> so it was an interesting exercise. But I'd call, I'd say one of them was sick. Well, that one wouldn't be given out to pupils for lessons during the day. Now, the, the stable would close up at 8 o'clock at night. And that was when the staff were then able to ride. And, of course, the other German kids would all be exhausted and they'd go home. So I was there with a guy called Bart Roseray, and He was a Belgian boy, Flemish. And he and I would not just ride our own horses, but we would ride all the other staff's horses as well. It was a great work. And then we would pull out the horses we'd um, said were sick. So we'd be riding two o'clock in the morning, but riding these pure white Lipidana stallions, Piaf and Passage, and I guess over the three years, maybe 15, 20 times, Von Neindorf would wander in at two o'clock in the morning and we'd see him and we'd be complete. We'd think, God, we're going to get sacked. We've had it. And he would just, he'd walk in and he'd be drunk. He would give us a lesson and then he, he'd walk out and it was never brought up the next morning and never a thing said. So, you know, I, I never did quite figure out that whether he remembered it, what his view on it was, whatever. But anyway, we survived there and, and that, was an amazing experience there with the Grand Prix work. It wasn't great in that it, it was quite a terrifying experience and it was about staying alive. So, you know, there were there are considerations of um, you can't be hostile with horses if they're going to run right at the top for you. And, and you know, that they'll save your life. It's really at the top, like there's huge discipline, but they've got to be your best mate. It's not a horse. It's not an animal. It goes beyond that. And uh, that didn't encourage that aspect of performance. And it had a lot to offer, but there were a lot of horses got injured or broken. And I realized that I was in terrible trouble if I came home to Australia and broke horses like we did there in Germany. And 
So I went from there to Nuno Vera in Portugal. That was a, he completely different. He was a French style of riding and it was on the weight of the reins. There were no extensions, lots of passage. And he would also train horses quite quickly, but very light, very gently. And there, there was no breakdown with his horses. So I was very interested in that. He was a freak of nature, Nuno Oliveira. And like to this day, Oliveira, I would watch a horse canter backwards around the arena. I've never seen a horse canter backwards ever again. The guy was, was unreal. But you had to get up at about 3 o'clock in the morning to watch him ride because that's when he would ride. And then all the rich people would turn up. And I was paying for my stay there. And I didn't last that long there because I ran out of money. But we would have lessons starting at 9. And by the time we'd finished, we would have sherry at midday. And we're all so drunk, including Oliveira, that just it was just hopeless. But everyone would go in and be drinking, you know, at midday. And uh, it was always sherry. And, and um, oh, my God. So in a way, it was a disaster. But you had to be there at three in the morning to watch him ride. And, of course, then by midday, he was finished. And so it was a, a fascinating experience and so anyway and then from there I went back to England and Jane Houghton Brown had an interesting stable where she was jumping she was a jumper and uh, but she was also switching over to dressage at the time so I was really interested in trying to get a bit more eventing orientation in England and that was great and I met Rosie my wife there uh, or my wife to be at that time and and then at home I came and here I am now <laughs> Okay. Now, just to do with the dressage and eventing, are you a dressage rider or are you an eventer? Are you an eventer who does dressage, a dressage rider who does eventing? Yeah, I think that changes um, mm. depending when you ask me. Mm. Um, I, I think what started me off was I was, I was always a competitor. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when I have a top dressage horse going, definitely a dressage rider. And, and you know, like uh, uh, Ricardo Moir is finished as being my number one horse. Now, he's 23, I think, but he's still sound. Mm-hmm. And he's been three times the Australian Grand Prix champion. So, of course, I was a dressage rider then. But yep. I've also been three times the Australian three-day event champion. And, and that included two of those times when it was roads and tracks and steeplechase. So yes. that's a little bit long time ago now. But, of course, you know, when I'm winning the big events, I'm, I'm an event rider. Uh, I think that that sort of thing actually does compromise my performance right at the top at either one of them. You know, it is definitely a little bit of a jack-of-all-trades. And if you're going to be amazingly good, there are always worlds. No matter how good you are, there are worlds above and beyond where you've reached and you can't see them that's why they're so difficult to get into but it is a knowledge game Mm -hmm. and so really it's just just how capable are you of studying the principles of the ideas for each discipline and each discipline much as there are skills that cross over and Mm -hmm. are helpful they are also individual specialized ideas you know and if you try and do what I've done, and basically all I've done is I've just, my whole life has been a party. I've just done what I what I love. But there are levels above what I've done. Like the gold medals are well and truly above that. Mm-hmm. All the competitions that you have won, and it may not be a competition, but what's your proudest moment? Oh, look, uh, you touched on it at the start with the whole family there at Stockholm. Mm-hmm. That was a great mm-hmm. story. But I never think of, something that I've done as being the pinnacle of my career. You know, I'm, I'm certainly from an athlete point of view, you know, I'm finished and I'm very aware of that because I'm up alongside all these kids from 18 to 27 here every day and they are fabulous riders and athletes and reflex reactions and instinctive and can make lightning quick decisions. But there's no question that, you know, if you, you, you still got to work hard. It, it, the whole world is an energy equation. So, you know, I mean, I'm hurting physically, but if I can overcome that and work, and of course you can, that makes you a formidable person in the horse world. I have so much experience and knowledge these days that, I, of course, I'm a better rider than I've ever been before. It's just whether the inspired effort that's required can be put in. And thirdly, 
you know, the horses I have now are amazing compared to the horses I had when I was in my 20s. And they didn't exist when I was in my 20s. But more to the point, you know, through the breeding program that we're very heavily committed to, and it's not a breed that we're, we're just interested in top-of-the-range horses. So, you know, we have warm bloods for sure. Like we've just had 40 foals hit the ground this year. And it's a huge commitment no matter where you are in the world in terms of, you know, how big we've got in that department. But we're just trying to understand genetics of the horses that are in the 20 at the Olympic Games. Basically, that's what directs our breeding program. And we've got both eventers and dressage horses. And they're two completely different animals in actual fact. So there is no question, you know, I'm slowly arming up. It's taken, I've been doing that for 30 years, really, really intensely. <laughs> so it is a long-term project, but surrounding me now are horses that uh, may be possibly capable of turning the world on its ear, you know. So I'm not quite done yet, you know. I know I'm yep. getting older, yep. but and of course, there is a succession thing because when, as I start to get to the point where even I'll admit that I'm gone, uh, you know, I, I'm involved every day coaching these eight mm-hmm. riders with us, and that they are superstars. And so, of course, you know, the horses are, are going into those riders as well. And and so, you know, I'll, I'll still think it's me riding the horse, and it'll be me <laughs> winning, even though it's not. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Else. Yeah. Yep. Okay, now thinking about the last 30 years, you know, to get to where you are now, I'm sure there's been some challenges. So what's been the biggest challenge, but also how did you overcome it? Right, well, I think there's nothing different about me to everyone else out there. The biggest thing is that to achieve the dream or the the belief, and lots of everyone has dreams. It's just most people are too embarrassed to say, look, I want to win a gold medal and I want to be waving to those crowds as they're all screaming at me and, you know, because I'm so good. And everyone goes, oh, you know, that's sort of not very polite, you know, and not very modest and it's actually not a good reflection of a good person, you know, that's so up yourself. But everyone secretly has that, you know, and and the big problem with it is you don't know how to realise that dream. So that's the big thing. You don't know what you're doing. Once you can see that, I say to people, I go, listen, of course this is going to embarrass you. But if being embarrassed is the biggest hurdle that we come across in making you a gold medalist, I've got to say, bring on embarrassment. Embarrassment is nothing, really, if you think of it in that context. But it's realistically, it's huge. People completely change their lives so that they're not going to be embarrassed. Mm -hmm. And I just say, well, if you can isolate that thought and really have a look at it, Everyone would say, okay, bring on embarrassment. Embarrass me. If that's all I have to consider or deal with, this is not going to be a problem. That kind of lets you isolate ideas and try and understand things. Now, one of the things you get to understand is you have no idea what you're doing. And you can read as many books as you like. It's not going to help you. It's a, the books are a fascinating thing. You read them and you think you know them and you think you understand what's being said. But then years later, you actually develop insights into some of those topics that you read. And then you read that book again. And the same words, the same pages, only there's a bit more dust on that book than when you first read it. You can see the author trying to climb out of the pages, trying to tell you what's going on. But you know, you're trying to find English words out of a dictionary that were never meant to convey calibration and and versions of an idea like if you can have the idea but if it's if, if it's too much you can be absolutely right but too much of a good idea is a disaster too little of a good idea is a disaster calibrating it so that it's actually all of a sudden in synergy with the universe that that's an elitist world that's that focus well if you don't have focus you can see the idea and be a disaster So all the reading in the world doesn't actually help you. You have to go out there and do it. And you've got to be thoughtful about it. You don't need to be an intellect, but you have to think. You can't do it instinctively. You've got to be trying to rationalize your your way through this, even when you don't know. Because if you're making a mistake, as long as you're rationalizing it, you work it out. It becomes obvious. 
you know, the, the Dutch call this a reactive sport. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So the rider is the action. The horse is the reaction. So I think the Dutch have had wonderful insight to do that. But I think that's Newton's law. Anyway, I go, yeah, that's absolutely right. These are laws of the universe. And, you know, that's quantum science. And, and no one gets quantum science. But everyone knows it's there. Like, there's no computer or human intellect that'll pick up on quantum science yet. That's a new frontier. But there's no question that it's sitting there. So I think all of this stuff will one day come up as maths formulas. But I don't see the maths formula. I, 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 that, that terrifies me. But it'll be so complicated not going to be that helpful anyway but i think uh, once you realize that then you know you can by braille work your way through this now of course you've got to keep referencing what other people have to say because there will be people out there that have had insight i think instructions a great way to try and source it because an instructor can give you not just an accurate idea but help you calibrate it and when you get it calibrated to a point where you get a reaction from the horse, you're the action, you, you calibrate an action, then once it becomes, it starts to find synergy with the world, you'll get a reaction from the horse. Now, if it's a bad reaction, you go, whoops, 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 and you've got to readjust it up. But as long as you're thoughtful, you can start getting that equation working in there. So the biggest obstacle is not knowing what you're doing and yet still prevailing. And there's no magic in the world. Like, you don't just go and you sort of say, oh, brilliant, that's what I needed to know. I can do it now. Forget it. You're having yourself on as soon as you do that sort of thing. And the other thing is you don't need to be a star to do, but you need to, to never give up, as I said, and you need to accept that you might be really mentally slow, but that's not what makes the difference here. It, it's just trying to understand what's going on and keep working logic. There's got to be reasons for it. Now, occasionally, you accidentally stumble across an idea, but like when you're doing flying changes, you know, and the horse won't do flying changes, and the, the, the odd horse, you know, has real trouble. Some horses pop flying changes through no trouble at all, but just as that horse exists, there are some horses which really, really struggle with it. And so you're trying to get this horse to do flying changes, and you're experimenting with real short panda, different levels of energy and that anyway whilst you're fiddling around sometimes with trying to get the canter really short and then picking up the tempo in that canter pop you get a clean change and you go oh my god what the hell happened there i've been struggling like mad i didn't even ask for the canter the flying change and i got a clean change i can't for the life of me get a clean change when i try well when you try you usually have a little lunch and so in actual fact your best efforts to do a flying change, you actually, because of the nature of a slightly bigger stride, you slow the tempo down. Well, when you're not thinking flying changes and you're working on experimenting with increasing the tempo, occasionally, bump, with no thought at all, you get a clean change. No thought on your behalf of doing the flying change. So the horse is actually just saying, look, if you can get those qualities in really at a certain calibration, then the flying change is so easy, it just pops out whether you ask for it or not. And so then then you've got to understand that you go, right, right, I need to research where the hell did that flying change come from because then I can replicate those ideas because obviously I had the skills to produce the flying change. It just came when your mind wasn't on the flying change. So you've triggered some sort of action from your actions to get the flying change, which is a reaction. So it's just logic. It's just being in synergy with the universe. So as long as you can stop any emotion getting in there, going, you shit horse, that's your bug. As soon as you do that, if you can keep away from that, the, the horse just talks to you. And, and it, it talks you through more and more and more advanced achievements. Now, in the meantime, you mustn't have the horse scared. You mustn't have him uncomfortable or hurting. And you've got to understand it's not a machine. So sometimes you've got to pull up before you've got a good outcome because the horse will fatigue and then once the fatigue becomes part of the equation they'll break that's where you do tendons and ligaments and bone and that so you know if the horse starts to fatigue that's it for the day finish you don't keep going even if you've had a crap day but you know everyone has a bad day at the office it's part of life and there's no grass 
in the world that goes straight up. They all have little blips. And, you know, when you're having a blip, that's the funny thing about emotion is you get depressed in there. But, you know, you get just as depressed when you realise you can't do rising trot. And so you're just learning to do posting. When you can't do it, you can't pick the correct diagonal you're rising on. It's a, it's a jolly depressing thing. You think, oh, I've got so far to go. I'm so useless. And you get depressed about it. Well, the same depression happens when you can't quite keep the path quite quick enough, the tempo in the trot, which can evolve, which does evolve into path. And yet the depression is all-consuming. It's just as all-consuming when you realise there's a fraction out in the tempo in the path as it is when you can't drive the trot. Well, you would think logically, you know, your depression associated with not quite keeping the tempo in the path is a lot less than when you can't get the correct diagonal. No, that's the wacko thing about people, is your emotion doesn't register that. And so no graph doesn't have flips, and yet the tiniest flip at a high level of riding can take a rider out just because they become so depressed. So you kind of got to know that. But it all revolves around not knowing what you're doing. And that's no excuse. Everyone, in, in actual fact, everybody... To get where they are, they've had to deal with things they didn't know how to do it and achieve it. You know, everyone, just to be, be alive and surviving today, they've achieved things that they didn't know how to do it. And yet somehow they found a way through it. So that is the number one obstacle between an average rider and an Olympic rider. And I think, the, yeah, yeah, so that's the big obstacle. That's, that's the number one obstacle. Just because you don't know what you're doing doesn't mean you can't do it. You just have to sort of understand that. Yep, yep. Okay, that's good. That's good. And I think really good advice for people who are maybe in a bit of a spot where they don't know what they're doing. They need someone to help them. Um, They need to get someone to help them so they can uh, work through that little bit of a blip. Yep. Now, just thinking about the students who come into you, you know, you've got eight there now and you've, you've hundreds, possibly thousands, I don't know. What's a common fault or a problem that you see that they come to you when they first come to you that they've got you might see it quite a few not every student but you know a number of times that you can say this is what the problem is and this is how to fix it oh you know Glennis I don't know that I ever come up with you know some answer that that makes the way forward uh, clearer you know when someone comes to me I say listen this is going to be really tough. Now, don't go looking surprised when this gets really tough and you're going to be really depressed about it. We, You and me and everyone else, we're just humans and we have to struggle with the fact that we are human. Now, this is an energy equation, so you have to throw yourself at it. It's just the more energy you put into it, the more of an outcome you'll get. So that's basically your currency. And you have to understand that, you know, I'll certainly encourage you to be really good and, and go out after your medals. I, I think most Olympic riders at, uh, have achieved about 65% of their potential. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're no, riding today is nowhere near where it, it will be one day. So, okay. you, you know, it's relatively easy to ride at the top. But there are things like out there that, things that last forever, and there's a reason they last forever, because they actually do depict reality. So no pain, no gain. Mm-hmm. You know, this is really painful. And and you just got to understand that. In a way, we think of ourselves as surfing pain. And there's just no way of, you know, managing to corner yourself to get inside without there being some urgent need for it. And it's usually pain. You know, that's what provides the urgency for it. And it's not physical pain. It's, it's you know, <laughs> the sort of deliberations, the frustration of it. And, you know, that sort of talk it would happen fairly early in, in people's place. But then when they start to struggle, just go, look, we spoke about this. You know, mm, it, it's, mm. this is it. This is, uh, this is where, you know, the fantasy ends and reality starts to cut in. I think the people are prepared to make a big effort. That's the main thing. It doesn't matter who they are. They have to understand that nobody is God. So when you're having a problem, you know, it's the same problem that everyone else will be having in some form or another. 
and there's, and there's you know, I can't just say, look, this is what you do and you'll sort that. I can do that at a preliminary level, but once they start to, you know, address potentials, there is no magic out there, and, mm-hmm. and you, you have to struggle. I My job is basically with the kids that I have here is no plateauing. So I'm always smoking through their programs, looking that they haven't plateaued. Mm-hmm. Plateauing is your ticket to mediocrity. But in terms of progress, so they've got to, got to always be onto a project where they, they're making progress. But I never want a big improvement. As soon as you make a, a quantum leap with improvement, you've jumped across a whole lot of territory that you haven't studied carefully. So basically, you don't own that territory well, it'll always come back to bite you. You've got to own your territory. And so we call it a millimetre technique. It's just tiny improvement. I don't care how tiny it is, mm-hmm. um, but if you can do that on a daily basis, let me tell you, you're going to be a mega, mega, mega superstar. But as long as it's happening on a weekly basis, that'll get you to the Olympics. No mm-hmm. problem. Mm-hmm. So we call it the millimetre technique. And uh, it means if you just do it by a millimetre, you, you've studied it, you'll understand everything inside that millimetre. I, I would very much stay away from quantum leaps. Um, okay. And so that takes a certain type of person to be able to take that on board. So that will take a lot of people out. Mm-hmm. Um, the boys, you know, often go, oh, you train too slow. I'm going to someone else where it's faster and it's more exciting and I can train more quickly. Well, it, you know, they can do that, but they won't make it. But that's one of the things why parents are so powerful in producing Olympic riders because the kids just grow up, you know, from when they're six. It's just years and years and years and years of moving up through the grades. As soon as you try and do it quickly, you finish. And in actual fact, if you deploy the millimetre technique, it actually ends up being really quick. One of the things out there is if um, rider stumbles across a megastar horse, then they do shine for a bit. But once they get right at the top, it's not enough. If they're relying on the horse making a serious contribution to the partnership, which a megastar horse can, the horse just can't stay confident when it's really right at the top. It's very lonely. You cannot be on your own. A rider has to have a horse and a horse cannot be on its own. The horse has to have a rider. So you, you, you can't just have a megastar horse and then sit back and have coffee and think your horse is going to do it for you. It, if you get a free horse, he'll let you perform, you know, at a pretty fancy standard, but not right at the top. Okay. So, okay. Yeah, so it's just kids that are prepared to work hard, to understand that plateauing is their arch enemy, um, no quantum leaps, but a millimetre technique where they improve a little bit by a little bit. And, of course, when you're doing just little bits by little bits, it's hard sometimes to see. But if you can do that, you will become very good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, hang on a sec. Let me interrupt to let people know about the horse industry qualifications at onlinehorsecollege.com. If you have a look at the flexible options, there's online theory and the practical components can be completed by video or with a qualified expert in your area. That website again is onlinehorsecollege.com. Okay, thanks. All of this writing, the practical stuff, do they do any book work? Is there any books that you'd recommend that would help people just to complement their training? Yeah, well, there are lots of books. Nuno Oliveira wrote a very, I think it's Equitation, I can't remember the name of it, but it's very beautiful, it's a bit philosophical, and I love it, but because I lived in that, you know, mm. um, I think the British Horse Society is very clever in their type of army upbringing. They do produce clinical, well-structured ideas, and you do need structure in your mind because you, know, you go out into unknown territory, so, you know, that. It certainly Colonel Froud helped me lots in sort of marking structure and discipline. And discipline has nothing to do with reprimand. So mm-hmm. Discipline is what you need to be able to produce melodies that the world has never heard before from a musician's point of view. But it's not by whacking them on the wrist with a ruler when they get a note wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, they, mm-hmm. they, the discipline is they apply themselves to learning the scale and reading music. And from years of study, they can 
produce the most beautiful thing. So discipline is what produces beauty, you know, and, and so discipline's critical, but it, it's not reprimand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so book-wise, I think the FEI rule book on definition on like things like on the bit and things like that is, is just brilliant. It's been written by geniuses. The trouble is when you first read them, it goes straight over your head. You know, the better you get, and then the more, and when you read it again, you go, my God, you know, your your insight is actually catered for within those definitions. They're total geniuses, so whoever, and it's probably been tweaked over the years, but it, it's a very good literary recording of what we're trying to do. It's just that words were never meant to convey calibrations and feelings and intuition and that, so it's a very clumsy way of recording experiences or trying to convey experiences, but it does give you structure. I think, um, you know, the old classic Newsler and Podiski and, and the old masters like that, I think those books are wonderful. They're great books. And the jumping books that are out there, you know, in this day and age, they're very sophisticated mm-hmm. uh, and good. I, I find them myself, you know, I remember trying to read a bit, you know, when I first started, and I found them quite intimidating. I was, certainly wasn't an academic, and so I found them intimidating. So that that's a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, okay. Just thinking, you know, talking to you now, Heath, I, I just keep reminding you how much energy you've got. Have you always had that energy? Is this something that you had <laughs> when you were young, when, you know, right through? Was, have people always said you've got lots of energy? Because you've always had lots of energy. How, how does that work out? I think I do have lots of energy, but I think a lot of people mix it up with, you know, I'm sort of theatrical a bit and, and I yell a lot and I'm passionate. I'm definitely passionate. I have riders here who are very quiet and, you know, when I'm explaining things or I'm telling them how ridiculous something is, they never say anything. Mm. And you think they're not passionate and they're not energetic. But I can tell you, as time goes by, they can only be successful if they're really embracing it and they're throwing a lot of energy at it. And, and they are. They're full of energy mm-hmm. and they're full of passion. They're driven with these dreams, but they're not, not easily earmarked, you know, and I I just think whatever, you know, I'm just sort of over the top like that and, you know, and I I think it's very funny and I find it a way of expressing myself and people say that, you know, I'm full of energy and I I am driven, there's no no question and and it's a good thing because it does help other people around me but I've got to say, as you get to know these kids, you know, and and they they stay for quite a period of time, like, you know, uh, Gordon married Emma. Uh, mm-hmm. Bishop, so Gordon Gordon Bishop married Emma Armstrong, and they were both with me. Well, Gordon was with me thirty years. Mm. Emma was with me fifteen years. You know, and Emma's a superstar. Like she just won Wallaby Hill three star, and I think she'll be one of the hot favourites. Well, definitely somebody that the, the Australian selectors will be looking at for the World Equestrian Games later on this year. You know, I, I think it's helped them, but I think you've got to watch it because. When you're really passionate and over the top, and like, and I, I think everyone has the right to agree with my points of view. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and so you, you can burn people. Mm-hmm. So you've got to watch that because if you burn them, they don't come back. Well, you failed as a mentor or as a coach because you cannot, no matter how brilliant you are, it takes a lot of time to convey just how accurately an idea has to be absorbed and then sort of produced to influence the horse in a perfect way where there are no cushions. And if you can get that good, that there are no repercussions in the way you influence a horse, then you are a genius. And I'm not. So, But it, it takes enormous time. At time, it's a study. And so if you just throw yourself around a bit like I do, that's the downside of it. You've got to watch it because, you know, I'm really interested in helping Australia win gold medals, you know, and but, but it can backfire, absolutely. Is that the main thing that you're looking forward to in the future is you being taking your part? Because you're not only, right, you know, as a competitor, you've also helped with the coaching part of um, going to the Olympics as well. Is that what you're looking forward to now? Or what else have you got going well, on? I, I don't know. I know that I'm having a wonderful time, you know, and like we have these auctions and, I find that a real challenge because we do 
make all of our living. And these eight riders, they're not really a commercial concern because if they were, then every you know, stud and professional outfit would have half a dozen of these kids competing for them as well. Well, they're not. So they're not a commercial concern. So making enough money is a huge challenge. And so the auctions are with these horses. And these are horses that are, we've bred for ourselves. But selling them at a price which then pays our bills is a challenge. And if you're not good enough at it, you die. You know, we've got 300 horses here that I own, not other people paying me for. You know, you do your maths on that. Every single one of those horses is fed. So if we make a split, we go down the tube without a ripple being left where we were. And so that's a huge challenge. And I find that really invigorating. That gets you out of bed. <laughs> You've got to pay those bills. Uh, you know, the idea of the kids, you know, being superstars is great. But if you think I've given up, like I, I need a really, really fancy horse to sort of rip back into the Olympics with. But I'm positioned better than nearly everyone else in Australia to stumble across something. I, I think there are other people addressing that. But sourcing an amazing horse is the never-ending problem for the really good riders out there in Australia. And for me, you know, I go, well, eventing, you know, I really know my way through it. And we have got some really good horses there. And I've got great facilities here, probably as good as anyone in Australia has got, from which I train from on a basis. And in dressage, well, our dressage in terms of standards worldwide is way off the pace. Now, it's no different to eventing in terms of how difficult it is. There's no chance. Eventing's just as difficult to do. So there's no problem with the Australian riders. So that means that if you look on the positive side, it's actually that riding for Australia at the Olympics is an open invitation for anyone that really, really wants to try. But they have to understand how come we're not doing better now. And also, you know, I mean, for me, I'm going, look, I've been there and done that and been an also rank. I'm not interested in that. So if I get picked, on an Australian dressage team with the horses I've got now, they they are not good enough to win a gold medal or make an impression out there. And you can say, well, Heath, it might be you that's not good enough. Well, let me tell you, Glennis, the guys that actually win those medals, some of them aren't that good. The Australian kids are really good. Um, and they're sure there's finesse there, but that's to do with insight, knowledge, and a really freaky horse will give our riders that. So, you know, if I stumbled across a horse that I thought would challenge for medals, then I'd definitely be back in there. And, and, and you know, we're, we're at the cusp of the breeding. Like, we have a young colt coming up at the moment that's by De Niro, and De Niro is dominating all the gold medal horses up there at the moment. Well, gold, the majority of the top 25 horses at the Olympics, at the last two Olympics, are De Niro with the dominant. He's a Donna Hull stallion. Mm -hmm. And uh, this colt that we've got is out of a totalist mare. Well, totalist is, you know, people sort of say, well, probably the best stallion, the best dressage horse you'll see for 100 years. Um, anyway, that's a little bit subjective. Although the De Niro isn't subjective. That's a statistic. Mm. And so, you know, you, you just go, well, the genetics, you don't know what you're going to get with genetics, but the genetics are part of a moving front line there. So you, if you can catch the rest of the world and maybe catch them slightly off balance there, which is always possible, mm -hmm. um, you can come up with something that's beyond what they've got. And, and so that would that would interest me. <laughs> we're we're in the game. We're mm -hmm. we're definitely there, working on it. So um, yeah, you know, I don't quite know, Glennis, where I'm going. I just know I'm having a lot of fun, mm -hmm. um, and I'm still managing to pay bills. And I'm watching all angles. You know, just where I'll throw energy. If, if and I have sort of cards on the table in all sorts of directions, and. I, if I come up with a full house or something really, really good, I'll throw everything I've got at it. So it's all still exciting. Good, good. Um, just to do with paying the bills, just very quickly, if you've got any tips for people who are just starting off in the horse industry about somehow paying the bills within their business to keep going. Yeah, that of course is one of the crippling factors for a lot of our top is mm. trying to pay the bills and of course you kind of got to go for this when you're younger 
certainly younger than me. And, and so you throw all your energies at winning, you know, competitions and then and that doesn't pay bills. So I would think uh, people need to at least wrestle with that. You know, I'm not telling them how to do it. And certainly for me, I've, I'm very involved with breeding and selling offspring from those, those bloodlines. And I try and have very fancy foals. Mm-hmm. I'm involved with the stallions being available at start. Um, the stallion business is what it once was because, the, you know, you can get the best stallions in the world through this frozen semen. So you, most people are bringing it in out of Germany or Holland or wherever, and that completely makes sense. But mm. it stops you working any numbers because that's quite expensive to do it with 40 mares or foals dropping. If I had to buy frozen semen for 40, I'd lose money every mm. Mm. Um, mm. So, and So the stallions I have are magnificently bred and if anything a little ahead of the game well that's what I try to do so you know I can offer a lot more security for people's outlay than frozen Mm -hmm. and I do feel it's only a matter of time before we produce gold medal horses um, in the dressage world and so you know it's it's certainly making money it's not making lots of money but it makes money Mm -hmm. you know I do a lot of teaching and teaching is a good thing It, it makes you go over your ideas, and it also makes you sometimes just just not achieve what you're trying to achieve. But you you just have to wait because that doesn't mean you won't achieve it in the next lesson or the lesson after that. And that's a wonderful thing to start to see that happening because mm-hmm. that's applicable to riding and winning anyway. And so I am sort of really across the the board there. I, I would just say to people, you have to think about it. You can't just say oh, it'll take care of itself. And it, it's the same with riding here. You know, like we go, like you, you mustn't plateau. So all of the kids here are focused up on gold medals. And mm-hmm. like it's not, not going to the Olympics, it's a gold medal. So we know the exact scores those top riders are producing at the moment. We know exactly what they're likely to produce at Tokyo in 2020. We know exactly what scores we're producing. We know the gap. And then we have a plan in place to close that gap by 2020. And so, you know, we're really serious. Now, I say to the, the kids, I say, now, listen, when you win this gold medal, what are you going to do then? And first, there's total silence. And they, they look around, then they go, we'll win another one. And I go, no, no, you're not to. I say, there's no problem with you going after a second gold medal, but that's plateauing. If you just win another gold medal, you've plateaued. Uh, you know, I need to know, what are you going to do with that gold medal? Like, it's it's definitely a leverage to, you know, other things in your life, like paying bills, like sponsorship. But I, I want to know. It's part of the plan. Like, mm. there's, there's not to be any plateauing. So, you know, it's not just, oh, I'm good. I've won a gold medal. Aren't I a hero? That's the end of my life. I'm going, like hell, you've already, that just transitions the next phase of your life. And now, it doesn't mean you can't keep doing gold medals, but that's no longer the peak of your performance. You've got to keep going. It's got to leverage the next phase. So I, I think, you know, not not everyone wants to win gold medals, but you just have to understand that I would encourage you always to go with where your passion is, but it, it's got to be then when you achieve that, how's that going to advantage you? And it always will, but you've got to work it out, and then you've got to work out a strategy so that you go again, and and that's important from a bill paying point of view. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, I want you now just to think about your philosophy with horses, and to summarise it, just so you know people can say, right, well, that's the main philosophy, the main principles that you're living by. Yeah, I think that contrary to what a lot of people think, horses are really generous, and as long as they're not being hurt and they're not being confused, they'll try. So. That's the trick to sort of understand who the horse is, what his confidences are, what his insecurities are, and what his physical sort of talents are or they're not, and then go and try and train him. He mustn't hurt. He mustn't be confused. And so that means that you always accept the horse for what he is. You don't try and make him something he's not. Now, as long as you can do that, you'll find that the horses try really hard. Now, the other thing that's really fascinating is if when you're schooling, if it's your best shot within those parameters, I sincerely believe 
that the horses actually recognise your best shot. Not instantly, not straight away, but if you're a genuine person and you're trying really, really hard to train a horse and explain an idea to him and you're a terrible rider, but you are completely genuine and you're not hurting the horse and you're not confusing the horse, the horses will actually reach out and try for you. So that is an incredible phenomenon. They're supposed to be dumb according to science today. Well, I think science today only records part of what's in existence out there in the universe. And, you know, in terms of IQ and intelligence or not intelligence, just remember the, the whales were once just floating the blubber until in our, our genius we discovered sonar, switched on the sonar and got the hell of a shock that realised that the, the whales were already there and having, you know, complex conversations. Complex conversations, so much so that even today we can't uh, translate them. We can translate sort of secret messages during the war that were designed for, you know, the different sides never to understand. Mm. We, we're bright enough to do that, but the whales are too complex for us to translate. So there are lots of things out there that aren't what we're told they are. So if you're really genuine and you're riding a horse, you don't scare it, you don't confuse it, and you're a total useless rider, but you're completely genuine... I sincerely believe these horses will actually reach out and help you. Um, unbelievably so. But you don't make a horse what he's not. So if you're piaffing a horse and he's gifted with a very modest piaff, don't hit him harder. Make him piaff more. That's a stupid thing. Don't make him what he's not. You just, you've just got to celebrate when they're, when they're trying for you. That's it. If a horse is trying for you, that's the old. <laughs> and, and if he's not trying for you, you haven't made it clear enough to him or you've confused him or you've, you've, you've got him, he's hurt. And then back off. And so, yeah, I, I have a very different approach to that training, I think. Well, not really, I think. But, but yeah, it, I just go, look, don't try and make the horse something he's not born to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's good. Heath, how can people contact you? I have a website. Just look up Ryan's and you'll find it. And you're very welcome to uh, email me or I have a, um, a phone number. It's, it's all over the place. And, and But I'm usually riding, like seriously, you know, you're ringing me and I'll be in the middle of riding a horse. And I am studying when I'm doing it. So you're better off texting me if you do it. And I sort of try and follow up all my texts and things when I come in at night. I'm, I'm in some ways, I'm a terrible communicator in that level, but that's the way you do it. And you, you will get, you, you, you know, I will respond. I, I try hard to respond to everyone. Yeah, I, I, I think I've probably got a terrible reputation for <laughs> not responding, but it's not because I mean to, you know. Okay, okay. Those details will be on horsechats.com slash Heath Ryan as well. And if you want to have a look at the other people who've had Heath Ryan influence them through their career, you can just do a search for Heath Ryan. Heath, it's, <laughs> it's been fantastic Thanks, talking mate. to you. Yeah. you. yeah, it's been fantastic. It's been, you know, very good talking to you, you know, just going over, going through your philosophy, a little bit of history, and I'm sure that people will find some gems of information there from you as well. So thanks very much for your time today and I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you very much, Gladys. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below. 